Green Future Growers, welcome to Season 3. I'm your host, Jackie Marie Beyer. If you're new to the show, I hope you'll subscribe on iTunes for free or follow on your favorite podcast app. And let's get growing. Hey listeners, do you want an earth-friendly landscape that's both functional and beautiful, that has maybe vegetables and flowers, uh, are you wondering how to grow vegetables in the most effective way possible so you get the most produce for your labor? Have you wondered, um, you know, what's the first step I should take? Do you have questions about deep beds versus garden beds? What's right for you? Well, Mike and I have put together 12 lessons designed to help you build your own organic oasis. It combines what my guests have told me with what Mike and I have done here, or mostly Mike has done here at the um, Mike's Green Garden, although I have certainly learned from my podcast. So get your copy of the Organic Oasis Guidebook and get started on building your own organic oasis today. Hey, everyone. Don't forget to go to the EarthWeekSummit.com. Uh, and sign up to attend the Earth Week Summit virtual event. If you need something to do for Earth Day in your community, you can download um, the play scripts for the Turtle Mishap and my Gaylord Nelson, Earth, founder of Earth Day, Sally Bear, Billy Bear play. You know, you can even just do them for Reader's Theater or Puppet Show or create an Earth Day event in your area. Remember, sign up Earth Week Summit dot com um she's got ideas if you need something to volunteer if you're looking for a green team to join get her awesome workbook if you're looking for something to do it's earth day is today's april 5th so it's um two weeks away two weeks from thursday i think uh earthweeksummit.com podcasting all the things all the things all the time good though we're good we feel good Welcome to the Green Organic Garden. It is Friday, January 15, 2021, although it, I'm pretty sure this is going to be my bonus Earth Day episode. If I can hold it in for that long, because I know this Rockstar Millennial is going to drop so many golden seeds. I have been telling you, if you're not listening to me, listen to his show, the No-Till Growers Podcast. He has guests on there that are going to teach you everything you know to make our world a better place, everything to grow more food in your garden. I know it's kind of geared towards market farmers, but don't worry. I learn something every single time I listen. Jesse, welcome back to the Green Organic Garden. We are just so blessed to have you here. And you have a book coming out besides listeners. So uh, just so much going on, but you guys are podcasters. He has a great podcast. So welcome back, Jesse. Thank you. It's so, it's so much fun to be back, Jackie. I'm excited. Yay! Well, I'm so glad you're here. So, I'm done. Tell everybody what is going on at your place. And you're selling your farm besides where you're moving. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Okay. So, let's start there because that's a good story. We, uh, my wife and I decided to, it's a long convoluted story, but we decided to move basically across town, um, which is no small feat. I mean, moving a farm even 20 feet is a big deal. Um, but we you know, found a place that kind of fit our goals a little better. It was a little bit um, more reachable for customers so we could develop a little bit of a farm store here um, at our new place. And um, we have, you know, uh, it's a little bit closer to all of our 
children's activities. Um, it's, it's got a, it's, it's a little bit less land, um, but it's about the same amount of open land. So we lose a little woods, but we, we get roughly the same, um, field as we used to have. So, um, yeah, it's good. It's a, it's a good move and, and we're, we're excited about it. Um, and say Jesse is location, 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 (laughs) every realtor, every business person knows it's all about location. It is. And it's funny because, you know, like a farm, some there's 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 situations in which that matters and doesn't matter. But I think COVID kind of um, brought to light like we were really close to our market at at the other property. And we're, we're we probably added another 10 minutes to our market drive to move to this other property. Um, but the ability to custom for customers to get back there to your market anyway. Right, right. Yeah, but I mean, you know, over the course of a season, if you're going to market uh, 60, 70 times, um, you know, going twice a week, uh, back and forth, I mean, that 10 minutes will add up. But it's but the the trade off is that we're getting this, um, like you said, location is so important, especially for customers, because our other place, it was like ridiculously hard to get back there. Um, you know, just for like your average sedan, it was kind of a, we had a little bit of a hill and it was a gravel driveway and it was a long gravel driveway. So, um, so yeah, this, this opens up some possibilities, you know, when, when COVID hit and we had to kind of change our market stuff, um, we realized like it would be really nice to have that option a little bit more open for customers who want more contactless delivery in a situation like that. Um, to be able to just come get what they need and go without even necessarily having to see anybody. Um, so yeah, it was kind of, it opened our eyes to that, to the potential for a farm store. But I, also, I just feel like farm stores are, um, kind of a neglected area of farm marketing and it's really starting to pick up. I don't know if you've come across that a lot in your podcast, Jackie, but I, I've, a lot of the people that I've been speaking with have, have mentioned that they're doing farm stores. Has that come up for you a lot? It is not, but then I don't interview as many market farmers as you do. I interview more backyard farmers, but as a customer of, uh, you know, I don't get to go, I don't go to, I don't buy from farms because I don't go to the farmer's market because it just doesn't work with my schedule. The local one in Eureka is at six o'clock on a Wednesday night in the summer. Never going to catch me in town at that time. <laughs> um, and then the other three are 65 miles away on Saturday morning. Uh, there used to be one on Thursday nights when, but, um, when I was coming home from Browning, but then I came home on Friday nights, it would just be if I took that Friday off or in the summer, again, it's 65, 70, you know, so I don't, so for me to be able to go to a farm store anytime that's convenient when I'm in town and I'm going to the grocery store would be a game changer. I would shop at that farm where I don't. Yeah, I feel like that too. I mean, it's like the, you know, if you had a grocery store, a small grocery store of sorts with fresh vegetables and maybe some other of the local you know, goods in that place and you could go see the farmer or just go pick up the farm on your own time. I feel like that's like a really, um, you know, great option if you can figure out a way to pull it together, uh, with how people pay and all those things. The one thing other, the other one is that I have heard from the market farmers that I've interviewed that they have much better luck with their CSA customers 
if the CSA customers don't get a box, but can come to the store or come to the farmer's market and, you know, they get like 12 credits and they can pick 12 items instead of being like, here, you're getting kale this week. Even if you don't like kale, you're getting eggplant. Even if you don't like eggplant here, you love eggplant, you know, but you can only have two, you know? So like the, I have heard from a lot of people, they also like that choice piece. Yeah. And we, we kind of, uh, in fact, in that way, we've actually dropped our CSA. Um, this year, last year we had to pick it back up because of COVID. Um, this year we were kind of on the fence about it, but since we're moving, like getting that amount of diversity on time and really feeling good about it with the amount of time it's get, we have to set up our new farm before the season starts, it's just not enough time. So we didn't feel like we could get a good diversity. So we decided to kind of double down on our, an idea that we introduced last year, which is the market card. And it's very similar to that. It's kind of a, you know, you prepay, you get a little bit of extra money. Um, we put five extra dollars on for, for every hundred dollars you spend. So that's like two extra items. Um, and then you, you know, can pick whatever you want. So it's kind of a choose your own, you know, uh, a CSA. And those people also get like access to, uh, we'll send them like a, um, like a pre-order list so they can pick that out. And then we can prepackage it on the farm and then they just swing by and they don't even really have to stand in line. They can just come grab it out of the cooler and be gone. Um, so we, yeah, I mean, I think that finding a way to provide convenience, um, without adding too yes. much. Yeah. That choice without adding too much burden onto the farmer. Um, that's kind of always the, the balance and that's what we're always trying to figure out for sure. And well, and that makes it even easier because then they're just pre-ordering and come pick it up and it's already there. Uh, lots of great things. So, so when are you going to be in your, did you, you've already bought your new, are you buying somebody else's farm that's already established? You're starting from scratch. Like tell us more. Yeah. So it's not an established vegetable farm. It was like kind of a homestead. Uh, they had a couple, they had a couple horses, um, and some, uh, alpacas and let's go, let's go back even one step for how big is it? Oh, okay. So the, the property itself is like six and a half acres. Um, and it was not an established farm. We are buying it and, um, and then selling our other farm and the, it's, it's, you know, kind of, it's all, the, the land is strangely similar. Like some of it's kind of flat, but some of it, it's almost all got a little bit of a slope to it, which is exactly like our other property. Cause that's, that's just what Kentucky is. It's very hilly. Um, but then soil's pretty good. It's roughly the same as our other property where it's like starting out at three to 5% organic matter and, um, you know, decent mineral composition, nothing, nothing out of, out of the, out of whack too much. Um, yeah. And it's just had continuous grazing of animals on pasture. So there's a lot of compaction in certain spots. Um, and certain spots are really nice. Um, well, well on the property and that sort of stuff. So we've got good, we've got a good water source and, um, you know, Tell me it's about kind of your well, like how many gallons per minute? Like our well is 560 feet deep and I think it's 12 gallons per minute. Okay. I wish I could give you those details, but we don't have them all yet. Um, with, we, we have the well and it's a very well established well, but we haven't got to, we haven't got to figure all those things out yet. That's, that's on the plans for the, for the coming weeks. Because so I by the time. I yeah. just can't imagine ever being able to irrigate two acres 
with our well. Like I found out this summer, my husband's mini farm is like a tenth of an acre. And we both last summer, the summer, we're always running out of water. And we have two wells. We have that well, and then we have a shallow well. And between the two, like, I don't know. I mean, I'm sure we must, there's a few ways we could, but it's just like impossible for me to imagine. Now, I did talk to Daniel Mays, and he talked about they water at night. I don't know if that would help us. But mm, yeah. I, I don't think the well can run for eight hours a day. I don't know. Anyway. Right. So yeah. Quiet. We're hearing your story. Oh, no. I, I mean, I like I like hearing your story. It's it's interesting. The um, are you doing overhead irrigation or are you doing drip irrigation in that situation? It's overhead. He just runs a sprinkler. He puts, oh. sticks it like in a hay bale. Right. Yeah. See, there you go. I mean, that you, you could probably get get away with it if you if you maybe did a combination of the two, a little overhead and a little drip, and um, yeah, did it at night. Got a lot of you know, utilize your mulches to retain your moisture and um. Yeah, we mulch. He does mulch really good. Yeah. I do. Um, what was I going to say about the drip? I wondered like this year if we got the um enough of a. Uh, stimulus check if we could invest in the drip and automated water we were talking about that we've been like making you know lists of like what what we were gonna do so we we got some pots because we got our checks on friday and i ordered a broad fork from jm Forta, which came yesterday and cool. um i'm so excited about it. and then we ordered plastic for the greenhouse from the bootstrap farmer guy do you know him yeah yeah they're they're good folks Brandon down there so, I think they're in Texas. Yeah, they're good folks. Yeah, it was a great deal. And it was just so like, he just happened to book his thing. And so I was looking at his website and the, just the day before, Mike and I, because if we had got our stimulus check in 2020, we needed to spend it on the farm or they were going to take it for income tax. Like I, mm. I don't know, back in October, I knew I like paid in anything we made after October, we were going to have to start paying extra in because I don't know, that's where my taxes were at. So it had to be, and so then we got our stimulus on Friday. I had already decided we were, so that's where it went. And I bought lentil seeds and I bought green lentils and farro to use as cover crops, hopefully, and also as a food crop. Lentils as a cover crop. That's cool. I hadn't heard that one. Well, Liz Carlisle wrote this book called The Lentil Underground, and that was where hmm. I first really heard about cover crops, because it's like one of those crops that you can lay as like an undercrop while something else is growing. And then farro is a type of rice that grows in Montana, so we're thinking locally grown, and it also might be a, I don't know. I ordered the actual like food that you eat, and I'm going to use those as seeds. I paid like $75, I think, for 20 pounds of seed. <laughs> I don't know. We'll see how it works and all that. I mean, I don't know. Yeah, that's interesting. Okay. It'll be interesting how to har I'm I'm wondering about how to harvest them and how it's all going to play out, but anyway, that's where our stimulus went, but now they're talking about sending more out. So what were you saying? That oh, I was thinking maybe the drip irrigation will come in this year. Yeah. Yeah, it can be a little bit of a pricey upfront investment but um i think it you know in your situation because you're in montana right like they're you're you yes. guys get what like 15 inches of rain or something a year i don't know it's not much it's very dry yeah. well and that's the whole thing about that like liz carlisle's book is they came out with lentils because it's 
um, they're the, these growers are mostly on the east side and they're more farmers. You know, they're growing like 200 acres of lentils or 2000 mm-hmm. acres of lentils, the people that I bought it from, but, um, timeless seeds, but, but they also do it because they don't really have irrigation. So these are dry farm crops that don't need that, that are in growing in fields in Montana that don't get watered. Right. But yes, right. we okay. are very, yeah. we're very dry. Yes. You're right about it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that that, you know, with, your, with, your, was, with your well. Patty Arbister and I started doing this thing called Grow Live and we were, truth be told, looking at your Patreon page and looking for solutions. And we are noticing that one of the cool things on your Patreon page is you offer your cell phone to, for people to text if they, you know, order like if they sign up to be a patron on a one of your bigger monthly things, I was like, wow, well, what is Jesse giving that he's getting all that money? And then I saw, oh, you're answering people's text questions. And here you are answering my questions for free. <laughs> oh, no, don't. I, I love answering. I mean, it, it, I think it helps everybody. A lot of times, I think one of the things that makes the podcast or any podcast that I listen to interesting is that it's two people having a conversation, like two educated people about a specific subject having a conversation. Um, and yeah, I mean, I have questions all the time. That's part of why I started the podcast. So it's, uh, yeah, that's basically what it is anyway. Right. I just, I, I ask the questions I have and then they answer them. And so, um, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, uh, I think that there's a lot of value in that. And I, I think there's also a lot of value in sharing it. Um, you know, it, it, it would be easy enough for me to just call people and ask them questions, but I like the opportunity to call people who spend a lot of time on a specific subject, whether it be an agronomist or a farmer, um, and ask them, you know, the questions that I feel like I have and other people have. Uh, it's fun. I mean, that's what I always liked about journalism too. Um, I've said, I, I don't know if I've said this to you, but I've said it before. Just this idea that like you're working on, uh, you know, an article and you have a question about, you know, uh, maybe some specific piece of research and you, Right. And then you write, you know, somebody at some academy um, and some professor and you ask them like you want to get 15 minutes of their time. And then you get 15 minutes, 20 minutes from somebody who's spent their entire lives working on like that one little question you have. And it's just that's just an extraordinary opportunity. I, I, I really wanted when I started the No Till Market Garden podcast to sort of bring that to the farming world of just like you you get somebody who's, you know, spend their life working on their system or, you know, spends 40, 50, 60 hours a week just doing this one thing and you find and you get to kind of pick their brain about it. I think that's so cool. And I love sharing it. Well, you know, deep down in my heart, my ultimate dream is to be a children's book illustrator who specializes in biographies because I love to do that kind of stuff too. <laughs> oh, I love those. Yeah, our kids do, you know, anytime um we're, you know, when we're reading books, I always love it when they pick up the ones that are biographical um, to read them. Yeah, that's a great that's a great pursuit. Cool. Well, thanks. And that's why I'm writing Rockstar Millennial about the awesome millennials I interviewed, just like you. Yeah, awesome. So, so Jesse, tell us more about your new farm. We got as far as like it's six and a half acres. <laughs> Yeah, so we'll probably do this year. We're gonna shoot. We're actually making some big changes, and maybe it's it'll be something of interest to talk about. But we used to farm 
all, all of our beds were 30 inches wide and 100 feet long, which is pretty much the kind of market garden standard. Um, not necessarily the length, but the width, 30 inches. And I really don't like wasted space. Um, not that I don't waste some because I do a lot of experimentation, but I don't like just seeing pathways everywhere. Um, I want, so I decided with this new property that we would expand our beds, um, width wise and then shrink them lengthwise. So, um, there now we went from 30 inches by 100 feet, um, to 48 inches. So four foot wide beds by 50 feet. Um, now that's a big change, but that adds significantly more growing space and significantly less pathway space. Um, and there's also a little bit more of an efficiency gain on in terms of how much how many crops you can get in that space. Um, but there's also, you know, there's 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 give and take with all of it because it's a little bit harder to walk over four foot wide beds. Um, you know, that's partially why I did 50 feet instead of 100 feet. Um and so we'll have probably like 50, I, I hope to get up 52, I think is my number that I want to get up to, um, by, well, preferably by the spring, but at least by June, um, have 52 of those beds for growing for the main season and then be over the summer adding another 20 or so, um, when time allows for, for fall and winter, um, to be coupled with that other 50. So in, in total, I think this math is going to be kind of just me winging it, but I think it'll be about three quarters of an acre um, in total production by spring, let's say spring next year. Um, and we'll probably work up to, I hope to work up to a full acre with undercover and open space, but um, we'll see. That's, 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 uh, you know, we, we do so much intensive planting um, intercropping and every bed gets multiple crops. Um, and so we don't need a ton of space. We can turn three quarters of, of an acre into what maybe some people can do on two acres. Um, but that, that comes with a lot of work. I mean, there's a lot of labor, the more intensive you make it. Um, so we, yeah, I mean, that's, 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 there's nothing going to change significantly beyond the bed width and size. Um, it'll be much the same operation we'll be doing. You know, we, we focus a lot on smaller vegetables, um, because they fit our sort of marketing system. Well, you know, cherry tomatoes, saladette tomatoes, um, cut lettuce, arugula. Um, and we really do well with baby squashes. We, we actually yellow squash and zucchini, um, green onions is another big one. Carrots. We sell tons of carrots. Um, yeah, those are, that's, it'll be much the same, uh, thing. But then also with the farm store, we kind of wonder what we'll have to change to sort of meet that market because it'll be a little bit more of a rural farm store option. So, um, I'm excited at the prospect of maybe having to try some, uh, other crops, maybe some sweet corn. We always grow a little sweet corn for ourselves, but we do not sell it for market because nobody would pay the prices that we'd have to charge. Um, and I mean, a minimum of a dollar in a year. I can't imagine like what people would say when they saw that at market. Um, really? Because I don't think it was like much cheaper than that in the grocery store ever this summer anyway. Oh, like really? For like regular, I don't know. We sure didn't buy any. I'll tell you that. Cause it, well, we didn't buy any, but, um, I don't remember ever seeing like three for a dollar corn 
50 cents an ear corn in the grocery store. I could be wrong. I kind of like don't, I kind of like skip the produce aisle anymore. Mike is like last year and he's now he's kind of spoiled me. So if he's not growing it, it's very hard for me to like pay for stuff that doesn't, has no taste and like no nutritional value anyway. My question, I have a question for you guys about harvesting. Like, so I got mm. Daniel Mays' book and like he's, he talks about, but like, like do you just really get down like you said labor intensive crops and like people are just cutting the lettuce with a knife like down on the ground or do you use like i saw ellie coleman had this thing that he was like pushing along like how are how do you harvest your lettuce so there's a lot of different options um lettuces it depends on the lettuce that you're growing like if you're doing a really dense mixed lettuce um, so you're just seeding lettuce really densely. Um, and if we're talking about on my scale, um, where, you know, it's probably going to be 50 pounds or something per harvest, um, then we're probably going to use a what's called a quick cut greens harvester. And I'm sure you're aware of that. That's a farmer's friend tool. Um, it's basically a a serrated blade that kind of goes back and forth. It's super sharp. And you um, kind of cut the lettuce and it has another mechanism that is a like a set of brushes that sort of push the lettuce back into a little basket. Um, it's hard to explain, but it's a um, it's a really efficient tool. Um, there are other lettuces, however, if you were to do what we do, which is we do all of our mixed lettuce off of lettuce heads. Um, so that would be Salanova and a couple others, one called Muir. Um, and uh, sometimes another one called Skyphos and a few others that we'll kind of mix in. Um, but we we will cut those head lettuces. Yeah, we basically just get on our hand on our knees and go with a knife and cut the lettuce really carefully and put that into a, a bin and mix it all together. Um, the value in doing it from a head lettuce versus from like a really dense planting of, of mixed lettuce um, is that you develop a lot more flavor. And so there's, it's really hard to compete with something like the Salanova, um, in terms of flavor and quality, even though it takes probably 20 more days, 15, 20 more days to develop, um, as a head lettuce. And it's a more intensive planting because you're, you're literally planting individual heads. When you cut it and mix it, um, the flavor is just amazing. The, the, the lasting, uh, its ability, the storability of it is extraordinary. It, you know, lasts a minimum of 10 days. We tell people you pretty much have two weeks, uh, to eat it and you'll be fine. And even after that, like we've eaten lettuce that's three weeks old and it's fine. Maybe have to pick out a few spots no here or there. Way. Yeah. And you know, that's, but harvest is not just the cut, right? Like it's when do you cut it? Um, how well has it been watered? Like it has to have a good moisture level. You got to cut it early in the morning. Um, you know, when it's cooled off. And you got to get it into 40, you know, three degree water as fast as you can into cool, nice, icy, cool water. Um, and then you got to get it dried off really well. Um, and then, uh, then you got to pack it and you got to get it in your cooler. If it sits in the heat for any amount of time, um, it will deteriorate. It, it, you know, it takes years off of its life, um, to just to warm up. So that's one of the big things is it's just got to be processed really fast. Um, what are you really using cool. for a dryer? We do a, you know, we have a modified, um, 
uh, 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 washing machine. So how oh, you it's, do I like so much of this? I did not know till I read Daniel Mays's book, which I would not have read Jesse if I was not listening to your podcast. <laughs> like I like. I just poured it. It was like all these answers. I was like, Mike, we've got to get one of these carrot roller barrel. I learned so much. I was, and so many of these things, like the, the spinner washer, which part of me wants just because I hate my washing machine. And I'm like, Hey, this will make a great salad spinner. And I'm just getting <laughs> a new washing machine. Cause it destroys my clothes. Cause it spins so much. It just, you know, it was like an eco star and yeah, this is great. Well, I don't even use a dryer and just as from the day I brought it home, I've heated it and it is going to become a salad washer. Sorry. To yeah, you. that's great. Yeah. You gotta, uh, there's a little modifications, some modifications you have to do, but they're it's easy enough. You can find all that on YouTube and, um, online, but. And like, the, I had no idea that salad had to be like harvested first thing in the morning and that you want to dip it in icy cold water and that you guys have like really mastered all these tips. You were, I told the listeners you were dropping so many golden seeds. <laughs> That's great. I, I, um, yeah. And Daniel's book is great. Uh, the, uh, the organic no-till vegetable farm, I think is the official title. Yeah. Um, yeah, d- that's definitely a, an excellent book. And there's a lot in there. I feel like even if you are just a, you know, a gardener, um, and you're not necessarily wanting to sell it for market, uh, I think there's a lot of great information in there because his, his methods are really simple. They're replicable. Um, and yeah, I, I love his work. He's, he's a great farmer. And then your book is coming out this summer. Yes, and we're it is. Even more from that. Tell us about your book that's coming out this summer. Yes. So, um, basically I can, uh, I'll back up and kind of give, um, I haven't told it that I haven't told it this way. No, 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 it's good. (laughs) I, I, I'll tell the story of the book from a way that I haven't necessarily told it before. Uh, which is to say that I, you know, several years ago, Hannah and I, Hannah and I, my wife, um, we were, you know, we, we noticed some crop failures and we were struggling with, you know, maybe some weeds here or there. And we were kind of like, I don't know, what do we, what can we do about this? So we started reading more about soil health and, um, because that's what everybody said is that good, healthy soil will reduce your pest pressure. It'll reduce your disease pressure. It'll, you know, reduce your weed pressure. And we were like, well, that's all sounds great. So how do we get healthy soil? And when in reading about healthy soil, we, we kind of stumbled across, you know, reading about how to, in, in search of healthy soil, we found, you know, like, um, what's called, uh, conservation agriculture. And this is, they give three basic principles, um, which are keep your soil covered as much as possible, keep it planted as much as possible and disturb it as little as possible. Um, which all sounds great, but there was no real technical, uh, explanation for how to do any of that. So like we were like, okay, great. Keep it covered, but covered with what? Like how covered? How do you get into that? Like if you put a mulch down, are you just supposed to pull the mulch aside and put the plant in? Like there wasn't any technical detail that to come along with it. Or they would say like use cover crops and we're like, great. But then how do you kill them without like a roller crimper or an herbicide? So there was a lot of like um, there were a lot of questions like that that we had. And over the few years of, you know, experimentation on our own farm, um, and also talking to several other growers, right, for the, for the podcast. And, um, you know, we've kind of come to some kind of 
proven methods for that. So the book is sort of designed around those three principles, but giving them some, um, you know, uh, technical backup. And, um, and I kind of describe the book generally as it's a book. It's less of a book about how to, how I do things on my farm necessarily. There's a lot of that in there, but it's not, that's not the focus of the book. The focus of the book is this is how soil works. And this is how photosynthesis works. And here's how to maximize that in your garden. Um, and that was kind of the, 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 the approach that I took was, um, a lot of farming books and, and Daniels and several others. And they're great. I love this. Um, they focus on their methods and, but those aren't always replicable necessarily for everyone everywhere. So I wanted something that would inform to be more of a choose your own adventure. Um, and I think that. And I wish it was, I wish it was like you have clay soil turned to page 88, but it's not quite like that. But it was, um, but it is kind of where anybody anywhere can gain some information about how to manage their, their system, uh, to manage their garden because soil works pretty much the same way in Montana that it does down here in Kentucky, right? It's, it, you know, maybe the soil, uh, makeup differs, but the soil life needs kind of the same things and photosynthesis is the same. Um, and so that was kind of the idea. That was the approach. And yeah, it'll be out. And you said this may come out in Earth Day. So that would be April. So it'll be out in July, but we're pre-selling it now. Um, and I think if you'll allow me to like elaborate on why we're pre-selling it so early, um, I think it's kind of a cool idea and maybe somebody else would want to replicate this. But the basically, um, you know, I have a publisher, which is Chelsea Green and I also run No-Till Growers, which is a site that we aggregate no-till information. We just started a new podcast called No-Till Flowers. We, we, you know, do a lot of videos and those sorts of things um, to kind of give this information away for free as much as possible. Um, but obviously, like when you're creating a lot of content, there's a lot of money involved. So we have the Patreon page, which helps. We do take advertising, which helps. Um, but we want we always do like sort of fundraisers. So we I've kind of thought of this book as an opportunity to do a fundraiser to raise more money to create more free content. Um, and it's become kind of a model for us to figure out ways to give stuff away, to give information away as much as we can. So obviously there's a lot of information in the book that I can't give, a, I, I would happily, I will happily give it away for free as I talk, but, um, that we, you know, is, is in the book. So there's a bit of a paywall there, but that buying that book opens up a lot of information um, because we'll have a huge uh, budget to work with for making videos and making more podcasts and doing those sorts of things. So um, it's, it's kind of a different approach, but we thought we'd give it a try. And so pre pre buying it, um, you know, just puts more money into our content creation. So that's, that's something that we're really excited about. So is it like a Kickstarter where the listeners pre buy it at no till growers.com. Um, you can pre-buy it. It's been on, it's funny enough. And I had no idea that this, it worked this way, but my book has been on Amazon for like two months and we weren't even close to done with it by then. <laughs> so, um, you could have in theory gone to Amazon and pre pre-bought it. You know, you can pre-buy it. Um, I think pr- a lot of places, like if you, uh, most of the regular bo- online bookstores, that sort of thing, you can, you can pre-buy it already, uh, which kind of blows my mind. There's so much about book writing, like I did not realize, um, 
you know, even though even uh, even someone who's kind of studied the industry and and, you know, been a journalist and stuff, uh, I I there was so much about book writing that was kind of a surprise to me. Um, but good surprises, mostly. I mean, just really interesting like that. Um, but yeah, you can. But I hope that that buyers that are interested would would buy it from notillgrowers.com. And if you're international, you'll just get it from your local bookstore or whoever, where wherever you usually get books that because we it would be the same as if you I lost you. Welcome back to the Green Organic Garden. Last time I was talking to Jesse last week and we he got cut off mid-sentence. We were talking about his amazing book he just wrote. And um, we're going to finish up today talking about what's going on on their farm. So, Jesse, tell us about something that grew well this year. Tell us about the new farm. Yeah, so... Let's do both. Um, right. We, the challenges of rural internet, right? So, um, we let, so on the new farm, yeah, it's going to be the, the focus and we maybe talked about this a little bit last week, but the, the focus is definitely going to still be vegetables. Um, we got our garlic in the ground, which is like the big thing. It's always the big thing for, you know, for us when we were moving, we were like, okay, where are we planting the garlic? Because that, you know, it's a huge product for us. You know, we sell, uh, it could be anywhere up to $10,000 worth of garlic every year. So it's a, it's a big item for us. Um, but we, yeah, so we kind of had, that was a big decision is like, where is it going on our old farm? Are we going to have to ask the new tenants to rent that plot of land? Um, are we going to buy, you know, are we going to put it on the new farm? So we, we luckily it worked out that we were able to put it in in October here on the new farm. Um, and, uh, how many something, plants do you grow to grow? that much garlic uh we usually do about uh seven or eight thousand bulbs um and it's mixed into our csa so that partly goes into the income of it um and we usually sell it for 250 or three dollars a bulb uh so and obviously there's like seconds and that sort of stuff so um you know and, and then also seed garlic uh so yeah, it's a lot. I mean, we, we, you know, we've grown up to, I think, 9,000 bulbs. Um, this past year, it was, it's going to be closer to 6,500. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, um, it's a big, it's a big. And when you say seed garlic, do you mean like, so that you have bulbs to plant for you or seed, seeds that you sell to people? You mean, no, we, so you have we don't sell, to, yeah. To grow for your crop for next year. So you have, 6,500 bulbs plus what you're selling? No, we keep about, uh, depends on how much we want to grow. Um, we've changed that a little bit over the years, but we keep about a thousand bulbs for seed for ourselves. Um, we don't really sell seed garlic, but all of our garlic is pretty much seed quality. So a lot of times people will buy it from us at market or at market price, um, as seed garlic, which is actually, if you're looking for good garlic, go to your local farmer's market and just buy the garlic. Um, generally, the price is better at market than it is to buy seed garlic. Um, you can inspect it like physically. You know, sometimes when you order seed garlic, it can be kind of a, a you know, a gamble. Um, so I always recommend to people like just go to your local farmer's market. That way, you know, it's locally adapted. Get some good certified organic garlic um you know you can ask the grower like what is it a hard neck is it a soft neck um do they grow it locally like what are some challenges with it what do they think about it what's the flavor like you can do all of those things at the farmer's market and then you get that bulb and you and you plant that in, in you know the fall late fall um and that that can be your seed garlic like that's a great way to grow out your seed garlic for an affordable price because if you buy 
garlic seed can be upwards of $25 a pound, especially certified organic garlic seed. Um, and when I say seed, I'm talking about the bulbs. Like nobody really grows garlic from seed. I mean, some people do, but it's not a common thing. Um, so when I'm t- referring to seed, I'm, I'm talking about the cloves and the bulbs. Um, I was just going to say that too. Like actually a bulb probably has like five cloves and each clove is going to make a plant, right? Yes. So, right. Each clove, each clove makes a plant. Um, and the, each bulb has anywhere from five to 10. If you're a hard neck, you know, sometimes you can get 12 on a hard neck, but usually it's like five to 10 on a hard neck. Soft necks can have a lot. Soft neck garlic, um, can have 20 cloves or more. Um, now that sounds great, but soft necks are also smaller. And if it has 20 cloves, that means each of the cloves are smaller. Um, so the bulbs are smaller and the cloves are smaller. And I think in terms of like culinary usage, um, they, it's just not as fun to cut up like a really tiny garlic clove. Um, I was just going to say, what's the difference? But see, for me, that might work better because garlic, Mike finds garlic really, really strong, the smell of garlic. So, mm. uh, I don't use garlic as much, so I I didn't know that there was a soft neck and a hard neck. That's this is fascinating. Okay, so well let's let's get into it a little bit because these are two. This is kind of an important distinction. Um, so the hard neck garlic are the ones that grow the the garlic stem that give you the flower. So the that's what an allium is. Um, is you know it's all in the same family, but it gives you this little allium. It's called a scape. Um, and that's what you get off hardneck. So it actually gives you another product, which, you know, we can sell at market or you can eat, uh, makes a really good salsa if you mix it with habaneros and ferment it. Um, but anyway, that scape comes with a hardneck, but it doesn't come with a softneck. Now the advantage to softneck is that they're longer storage. Um, so whereas a hardneck will get you, I don't know, it did, obviously it depends on the variety, but anywhere from like, you know, six months storage to maybe seven or eight months, like you can get a full year out of a soft neck garlic. So hard neck doesn't store as well. Uh, soft neck does store better. Um, and that has, you know, market potential, but it also just like this time of year, we're not eating our own garlic anymore because it's just not quite as good as it was when we harvested it. Um, and we'll eat it, but it's just, it's just loses that, that quality and it starts to kind of go degrade and dehydrate. Um, and, and you can dehydrate, you can actively dehydrate it and make, turn it into something. That's a great way to keep it going. But soft neck garlic is, is going to last you longer. Soft neck is also, uh, descriptive of the neck itself. So when you see garlic braids, those are done with soft neck garlic and not hard neck garlic. Um, and that can be, if you're doing it for market, that's a great way to, uh, you know, maybe value add. You braid a few of those and you sell it for a few more dollars. Um, if you are doing it for, um, you know, yourself, it's a great way to, to, to store them very easily and very compact, uh, to braid them and hang them up. Um, it's also very pretty. It's very ornamental. Um, but you can't really do that with hard necks. They don't, they don't quite have the same, uh, you know, flexibility. Wow. I had no idea. So do you grow some of each? 
we used to grow soft neck. We don't grow soft necks anymore. Um, we just haven't found one we really liked the flavor of that much. But although it sounds like Mike may like those a more, little, little bit more because they don't tend to be quite as pungent. Um, that's a big generality, you know, uh, general statement, but they, they, they don't tend to be quite as pungent as your, as your, uh, hard necks. Um, they grow really well in the south though. So another thing about garlic, uh, is that, you know, it needs a vernalization period, much like a lot of flowers do. So it needs a certain amount of cold days. And I think for, you know, our variety is music and it usually needs 40 days below 40 degrees. Um, and if you don't get that, then you don't quite get the same bulb. Um, you'll, you'll end up with these like kind of, uh, round bulbs that are, um, that don't propagate themselves. They don't last. They're just like a single clove. Um, and, the, you know, that it's edible, but it's, it's not what you want, um, in terms of propagating or necessarily culinary use. Um, whereas the soft necks don't quite have the same fertilization period. So you need, so oftentimes the place that you see soft necks the most, um, is in the South. That's where a lot of people will grow soft neck garlic. Hmm, that's so interesting. Cause the only people I know up here that really used to grow a lot of garlic, she used to braid it all. So it must grow somewhat up here. Yeah. I, I think, I don't think it's, uh, necessarily that it wouldn't grow up there or that it can't grow up there. I just think that a lot of people in the South have struggled with the hard neck varieties, um, because they don't do quite as well. But whereas in the North, I think you can pretty much do both without too much trouble as far as I'm aware. I also never would have realized Kentucky was considered the north. <laughs> no, it's not. Kentucky's it's a funny the south. <laughs> it, you know, I consider it the south. Like we, so basically, it's kind of the Midwest. You people, people think of it as the south. Um, it's more of the. It's more like Southern Ohio. <laughs> so it's like it's so whatever you picture Ohio, it's kind of like a Midwest sort of Southern culture, but like temperature wise, it's a little bit more like Ohio than it is like Tennessee or, you know, Alabama or something. Um, we're humid, we're hot, but we get pretty cold winters and, um, you know, we don't get much snow, but we do get, yeah, some pretty cold temperatures. We usually get down to single digits a couple times. And, um, so it's, it's like a funny, it's a funny climate. Yeah. And it's, it's a very odd space because it's not exactly the Midwest. We get a lot more rain than the Midwest gets. It's not exactly the South. We're not quite that hot. Um, but it's not exactly, you know, uh, the North either. <laughs> so it's just a funny spot. Huh. You seem to like it though, right? Oh, I love it. Yeah. Kentucky's great. The, 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 um, the land is affordable. There's plenty of water. We get a lot of rainfall. Uh, I always encourage people to look at Kentucky. Nobody does. I, I don't know why it's not more popular. Like if you go over to North Carolina, um, there's so many farms. There's so many cool farms. Um, and maybe that's because there's cool towns like Asheville, but the, there's not a lot of that in Kentucky, but there's, there's not that big of a difference. We're a little bit cooler. We're not coastal. Um, but we, you know, we've got Louisville's a great town. Lexington is a great town. Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a funny, it's funny that there's not more of a farming culture here. Um, the land is a little bit, it's really rolling. So it's hard to find any flat land. I've never really farmed on anything flat here. <laughs> it's always been at some sort of a, you know, a little bit of a slope. Um, so yeah, I mean, that well, could that be part of it. Probably, that probably makes your views and things like driving around and hiking and stuff kind of like, oh, really pretty. 
Oh, it's beautiful. Yeah. It, it, Kentucky's gorgeous. I mean, you, you think of like the horse farms and stuff and that's kind of what we're known for maybe. Um, but we also have Red River Gorge and all these like really cool hiking spaces and, um, uh, the Kentucky River is really pretty and yeah, lots of rolling hills and stuff. Um, there's a little bit more flatland as you get out towards like Missouri, Illinois, that side of Kentucky, the sort of western side. Um, but the eastern side of Kentucky is beautiful. Um, as well. I mean, they're both beautiful for different reasons, but more rolling, more hills. You get into the Appalachian, you know, mountains over there. So, yep. So what are you guys excited to try next year? Something different or new on your new farm? Yeah, we're going to kind of dial in um, some of the work that we've been doing in terms of like, well, one thing I should say is that coming uh, the new farm had to come about pretty fast. So we're not going to do a lot, the, the same amount of experimentation that we're do that we usually do. Um, but we are going to concentrate. Yeah. on like, uh, a lot of the kind of summer lettuce is something that we do a lot of, and that, that can be really hard for growers around here. So that's been a good market item for us as we do a lot of summer lettuce. We do a lot of, um, beets and, uh, uh, the cherry tomatoes and green onions. Those are kind of, uh, some of our main crops. And then we'll still do some sweet potatoes and, um, of course, garlic and onions and those sorts of things. But th- those, that sort of lettuce, beets, carrots, carrots is a huge item for us. We grow a ton of carrots. Um, but we, yeah, those are kind of like our main market items. So we're going to actually, uh, decrease a little bit our diversity for a season and then get back to it next year just because we have so much going on with the book and the, you know, the farm move and having to set up all the farm beds and all of those things. So we're going to kind of keep it a little bit more, um, focused this year and see if we can, see if we can't survive the season without, you know, uh, burning out <laughs> trying to do all that stuff. Um, yeah, you've what, got a lot on your plate this year. Yeah, it, it's a lot. It's a lot to, to take on. So, um, and the one thing we, we, we didn't talk too much about, but the, what worked well for us last year. Um, and, uh, one thing that we're kind of realizing and dialing in is a little bit more and more is, and I, I mentioned beets is, is our beet production has improved. And one of the things that like has really, um, has really helped with that, I think, is diffusing the sunlight a little bit. I think that beets in the spring and the fall, they grow wonderfully. But in the summer, that heat stress from the sun uh, tends to make them susceptible to disease and they just don't thrive. And what we found is throwing some sort of a little bit of shade cloth or um, planting them in the tunnel, uh, you know, doing those sorts of things. That's like something that we've found has has produced really great beets um, overall. And we, I love that, that that's a crop that we just almost can't bring enough of to market. We sell out of beets basically every time we go. And, and are you same, making red, sowing red beets or golden beets or both? Both. Um, I've been doing, there's one called Zeppo that I really like. Um, and that's been a good red beet for us. And then Touchstone, uh, gold is another one. And, We've been growing those for several years and those two in particular, we also grew Chioja or Kyoja. Um, that, that's the candy stripe one. Um, people like that, but I 
don't really love growing it as much. Um, I, I just, I don't know that it, I, I don't know that it gets the response to the market that I want. Um, but having a red beet and a gold beet, um, is, is that, that's been really, uh, successful for us. And like I said, we, you know, we really can't, we almost can't bring enough beets. Um, and same with carrots. So if, for us on our, in our market, like if you can figure out a good way to grow beets and carrots, um, then you can, you know, then we've found a lot of success that way, at least. Um, and head lettuces and lettuces, those are good in the middle of the summer. Everybody else is, you know, focused on tomatoes and watermelons and that sort of stuff. But we're over there with the salad for the salad people. And, uh, that's, that's been a great market, uh, approach for us. Do you find people like the beet greens for salads and for cooking? Yes. Um, there are a few people who ask us to tear them off, uh, and just kind of take them back to the farm, which is fine. But there are people, um, I would say the majority of people like the beet greens and they definitely like them to be on the plant when they buy them. So same thing with carrot greens. Um, carrots, it's kind of a challenge. We try and harvest our carrots the day before we take them to market. You don't want them to have the greens on for very long. Like if you're a customer and you buy some carrots, you really want to take those greens off immediately. Uh, but as a farmer, they really help sell the product. If you don't have greens on there, it's really, it makes it much more difficult to sell. So, um, we always keep the greens on and then we suggest to the customer that they take them off whenever they take them home. Um, just to, per- because the greens will actually absorb a lot of the flavor of the carrot root, um, while they're, you know, once they start to warm up or once they've, they've been out of the ground for too long. Um, with the beet greens, we do find that a lot of customers like those and we have certain customers who don't even want the beets. They just want the beet greens and not, and beets and chard, Swiss chard are in the same family. They don't prefer Swiss chard. They really like beet greens specifically. Um, and I think that's, I always think that's really interesting, but yeah, we, we, we found that growing them undercover actually does help a lot with keeping those beet greens looking nice. So if somebody does want to eat them, they'll, they'll feel inspired to do so. Just eat again, golden seeds just coming out of your <laughs> mouth. That's awesome. We find that way too. We have like people who want the, especially the golden beets. Like there's this one lady in Canada who's always like, got those golden beets ready? Got any golden beets? Are the golden beets ready? Um, and then me personally, I love the beet greens until the Swiss chard's ready. And then I generally switch to the Swiss chard, but I could cook those both. Like I try to freeze beet greens. I, I like all that kind of stuff. Um, what, what's next? Um, did you want to tell us about something that didn't go the way you thought it was going to last season? Hmm. Um, one that I've been, so one thing that we do on our farm a lot is interplanting and I do a lot of interplanting. I'm always experimenting with new interplanting options. Um, I go into this a lot in my book too, but, um, one of the things that with interplanting is that you definitely have some, uh, trial and error and maybe more error than trial. Um, but the, the, thing with that is that we find um i've found a lot of things that have worked and some that haven't so like an example of something that works is i can pretty much put lettuce wherever i want um and that is 
a, you know, like let's say that I have a bed of tomatoes with a single row of tomatoes down the middle. Um, I can put lettuce on the sides while the tomatoes are growing and get, you know, either a few cuttings off that lettuce or a big lettuce head um, it, without any obvious, you know, detriment to the to the tomato plant. Um, in fact, I would argue that they're probably complementary. So uh, the so that's like a successful form of interplanting is you have all the space on the sides of your tomato beds because your tomatoes are small for a long time and then they get bigger and bigger and then they eventually would take over the whole bed. But there's a bunch of time before you start producing your tomatoes that you could have some other crop like radishes or like lettuce or green onions or uh, carrots or beets or something like that. And lettuce is one that I just love to put everywhere. Um, so that's like a that's like a general success that we've had over the years. And, and that's one that continues to be successful for us. Um, one of the failures uh, is actually with planting carrots at the wrong time. So like um, carrots are kind of thought of as a good inter interplant by a lot of people, uh, but they actually are not that competitive. And that what you'll find is if they have too much competition right up against them. So like, let's say you planted them with some lettuce or maybe even with your tomatoes or something um, too early on, if they have too much competition too early on, they'll put more energy into their greens than they will into their roots. Um, when that happens, you get smaller roots and really robust greens, which is not exactly what you want for a carrot. Um, so it's good to give them space and use where you can use a different crop in place of maybe those carrots or the way that you can use carrots though is planting something into the carrots later on. So, um, once the carrots have matured, because once they've got to that mature level, um, they're not, the, the, the root is not going to be quite as affected as it will if they're having to compete early on. Um, if they're having to compete early on, like I said, they're going to put a lot more energy into growing really big greens. So an example of what I'm talking about is called relay cropping. Um, so you grow your carrots out till they're at a good size and then you transplant the next crop into the carrot bed, um, right before you pull it out. And the, you know, that can be a great way to get the next crop growing while the carrots are still kind of maturing and, and before you've pulled them out of the ground. Um, when you and, say the next crop, is it carrots? Do you transplant your carrots or direct seed? No, we direct seed the carrots. So the next crop would be something else. Um, it could be lettuce. It could be uh, we've done well with squash and zucchini, and um, which is kind of surprising because those have really sensitive roots, but they actually do well in a relay cropping scenario. Um, uh, what are some other things we've done? Tomatoes. Um, you can do... Uh, it pretty much whatever I like those bigger crops because you, you know, with carrots, you have a very dense bed. So you don't want to try and transplant something that is also very dense. Like, um, you know, you wouldn't want to sow maybe, I guess you could sow a, a, a seed in there, but that they're not going to germinate as well, but that then you want to transplant something that's going to has like a wider spacing, like maybe a winter squash or, uh, yeah, like a tomato, uh, or even maybe a sweet potato if the timing works out, um, or even maybe a regular potato if the timing works out. But the, you basically, if you can imagine like a full bed of carrots, you go through the spacing that you need. So let's say it's tomatoes and you're doing them at two feet in the row, two feet apart in the row. Um, you'd go every two feet, harvest those first carrots, and then you'd open up that space. So that space is ready. There's like a little circle right in the middle of the bed every two feet, and then you just transplant your your tomatoes right into that. Um, 
So that's like just an example of that, or you could do that same thing with squash or whatever it is. So that they'd start out, um, you know, kind of in the middle of the bed and it would maybe be a little shady there, but it would give them a chance to establish. And then you pull the rest of the carrots out and suddenly they have this nice clean bed all around them because the carrots have been blocking out the weeds, um, to sort of mature into the bed, but they've already been there for maybe a week or so. So their roots are already established and they're ready to take over the bed. So it just cuts that amount of time. This is a no tilt technique. This cuts that amount of time that that plant is going to be maturing. So you get a second crop out of that bed. Um, because the alternative is that you pull all the carrots, then you'd prep, you know, have to entirely prep the bed. Um, and then, then you'd plant your, your crop, but you know, if you did it in the relay crop scenario, then you've got, you're ahead a week or two. So you're, you have that squash plant. Let's just stick with that, that, that example or the tomato plant. Sorry. Let's stick with that example. Let's stick with the tomato plant example. That tomato plant is there already there for two weeks before, you know, the other crop comes out. So, um, it just helps it to get established, gets a jump, gets a head start on, on, on growth. So you get to, especially in a colder climate where you don't have as long of a season, um, it's a great way of, of really using that, utilizing that bed space. Ah, you explain things so well. One year I tried to, I planted a crop of buckwheat and then I tried to put the carrots in. So when I chopped down the buckwheat, the carrots were going to grow, but they didn't germinate. But I probably have my timing. I was trying to put a fall crop of carrots in, so I probably planted them like in August. I don't know. It didn't work. They didn't grow at all. I think they were too shaded because the buckwheat was too tall. Yeah, yeah, that's that's possible. I thought that's what you were going to tell us that you were interplanting with your carrots was like some kind of cover crop, like clover. Or, I don't know. I think I mentioned I bought some lentils to try to grow as a cover crop this year. Yeah. So we're going to see how that's going to go. I, I, there's no reason you couldn't. Um, I, I think that one of the things that's really hard. Okay. So let's say you have a bed of carrots. Let's go back to our bed of carrots and, and let's say you do want to get a cover crop in there. Your challenge there is getting seed to soil contact. Like you, if you have mature carrots, getting the cover crop seed to get into the soil enough that it's going to retain the moisture it needs to germinate is is the biggest challenge if you can you know if you can use a cedar that's going to like push them into the soil a little bit that's great but if you're talking about already mature carrots um it would be kind of tough it'd be tough to get anything that's a seeded crop into a mature bed of carrots for instance um you can do that a lot of people overseed like broadcast um you know clover into late like your fall brassicas so like you have a bed of um you know broccoli and brussels sprouts and that sort of stuff before that's fully or while that's maturing maybe a few weeks after you put it in the ground you can broadcast your cover crop so then you have kind of a living cover crop um so once those crops come out then it's immediately into cover crop for the winter um so that's kind of that's an option. It's it's pretty hard to get that stuff to germinate, though. I always when it comes to cover crops like I don't like and maybe this is a no till thing, um, just the way that we, you know, we aren't always using equipment to bury stuff. So like if you're broadcasting, um, it's not going to get as much germination. So I always prefer to use a cedar. Um, and what I was referencing there with a the no till is like when you're doing uh, like a, a cover crop on a 
you know, bare piece of ground, you broadcast it and then you lightly harrow it into the soil. You got to kind of lightly cover it up and then pack it in. Um, that, that's a little bit harder to do in a, in a scenario where you already have a crop like those broccoli. They're already there. So you kind of could use a cedar to sort of go around them. Um, or in a scenario like the carrots where you can't really get anything in there to put them underneath of the soil, put the seeds, the cover crop seed underneath of the soil. Um, but it's, you can, I think it's, I mean, anywhere you can use a cover crop, especially when it's going to be barren over the winter, for instance. Um, yeah, you should. Absolutely. Yeah. And also like our beds are much smaller than your, you know, we're talking a way smaller size. Like you could practically hand plant the cover crop seeds. <laughs> Right, right. Yeah. And, and in a garden context, like that's a that's a benefit of not being on the scale that we're on um, is that that's not feasible for us to to sort of go through and try and, you know, hand transplant. Well, you know, for you, like on a small if you're talking about like a four by eight garden, you could even start your cover crops in seed trays and then just plug the plugs in. And you're good to go. Like you could do that on a four by eight scale without, you know, it would take a little bit of work, but it'd give you a cover crop and then you could put that cover crop into a mature crop without having to worry about whether or not you're going to get good seed, um, you know, seed growth. So yeah, absolutely. On a small scale, you have a lot of options. In fact, we, I learn a lot about no-till from small scale because, um, a lot of times that people are doing like, you know, four by eight garden beds or something in their backyard. Um, they don't want to spend a lot of time farm. They don't want to spend a lot of time cultivating. They want it to kind of just be set up and work. And there's a lot of techniques that I've actually taken from backyard gardening uh, and, you know, figured out ways to do them on a larger scale. Um, so, so no, I think they're both, it's, it's kind of, it can be adapted both ways. Um, and I talk about that too in the book, just this idea of like, it's not, you know, as long as you're uh, sort of working towards, what soil needs to function it doesn't really matter the scale or even where you are you know soil and plants and photosynthesis all work the same way here in kentucky that they do up in montana so it's it's all about figuring out you know how to meet your soil's needs in your context with the materials you have access to but um but the material but the but the needs of the soil don't really change cool well that's what i'm going to be experimenting with this year so that's good to hear jesse tell listeners where they find your podcast because first of all my listeners are podcast listeners so they want to check out your podcast and where they get your website and where they pre-order your book and all those kind of things yeah you can do all of those things at notillgrowers.com the name of the podcast is the no-till market garden podcast um we also have a new podcast called no-till flowers and by the time this podcast goes up, there will be uh, the Winter Growers Podcast. I think we're going to call it the Winter Growers Podcast. Um, but either Winter Farming or Winter Growers, that that will also be up. And uh, I hope you will check all that out. Awesome. Thank you so much, Jesse. Give Hannah our best and just everything to your family. And just you are such a rock star, changing our world, <laughs> growing food, teaching people, just... We love you and we wish you the best and thanks for sharing with us today. Well, thank you, Jackie, and thank you so much for having me on. Aww, thank you for coming back. 
Hey listeners, I know it's been a while since I mentioned this, but if you are a fan of the Organic Gardener podcast and you'd like others to be able to find it and learn from my amazing guests, um, I would so appreciate it if you could leave a review on iTunes. It just really helps others find the show and learn just like you and me. Uh, there's a link in the show notes. It's actually really easy to do once you get to iTunes. So, um, and you can get there right from your podcast app. Uh, you can get there online. If you're on, um, the website, you can just Google organic order podcast at iTunes or go to my website and there's links to connect you there. Um, but it would just really, really help if we could get a few more reviews on iTunes. So if you could leave a review for the show, uh, I would really appreciate it. And so would our planet. Thanks again for listening and remember grow local.